Good morning. Please take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to Daniel, Daniel chapter 2. But before we dive into the lesson this morning, I'd like to review a little bit from last week. How many of you remember the object lesson I did last week with the glass? How many remember the object lesson with the glass? Oh, good. Now, I know I have a weakness, and you know what? I think it's, a, it's something that's a weakness all human beings have, is that sometimes we remember the object, and we don't always remember the lesson. You ever heard somebody tell a story, and you remember the story, but then you're like, what was the point of that story? Or maybe this, you all remember that I had glass here last week, and that I broke glass, but what was the lesson? What was the point? What was the lesson of the object lesson with the glass and breaking the glass? Hannah? Having temperance. Oh, that's good, but what's that mean? What's temperance mean? Hope? Being under control. Very good. So, someone tell me, how did me breaking the glass illustrate being under control? Elijah? Right, so he compared the two glasses. The one was tempered and the one was not. The one broke in an uncontrolled, dangerous way, and the other broke in a controlled way that was safer. Not entirely safe. I mean, people still get hurt with tempered glass, but it's not as dangerous. Very good. I'm so glad you remember not just the object, but the object lesson. So the one glass that um, broke into all the little pieces was tempered glass, and it broke in a controlled way because it had been processed and prepared in a controlled way to behave in a controlled way when broken. So the lesson is, you all learned the meanings of those, but what does that have to do with us and the fruit of the Spirit and us having the fruit of the Spirit of temperance? What's the lesson there? Yes. 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 To let the Lord keep us in control. So temperance, a fruit of the Spirit, is that we are under control, under the control of the Spirit of God, both in the things that we do and also in the way we respond even when things are hard. So yes, temperance is being under control, specifically under the Spirit's control. Well, let's look at Daniel chapter 2. Now, in a few weeks, we're going to dive into the book of Daniel intently and go all the way through the whole book. But this being Independence Day weekend, and by the way, Mr. Tool, happy 4th tomorrow. <laughs> Independence Day weekend... Um, I thought we would jump into a theme and a topic of kingdoms and governorships as revealed to us, especially in the book of Daniel, in the book of Daniel. And I'd like to look at it here particularly, and part of the reason I'm wanting to jump into Daniel here for this, not only is because of the holiday week, is because it actually in chronology has already happened. We've been learning lots of things that are happening in the 
kingdom of Judah, and events in Daniel have already been happening. Now, if you're like me, when I was a young guy and I started to grow up, and it wasn't until I was a long time an adult, that I realized that the events of Daniel were layered over on top of the events of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and 2 Kings. You know, I just kind of thought it went, you know, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah. Oh, yeah, and then Daniel was supposed to actually go back here between 2 Chronicles and Ezra. But that's not really the way it works. They layer over the top of each other. So we've been learning about events going on in Judah and about the kings there in Judah and about Jeremiah and about about, uh, the prophets there in Judah and the kings in Judah. And we learned just one time about the fact that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away some captives in 605 BC. And we never, we just kind of forgotten about them for a moment as we're focusing on the history in Judah. But while we're focusing on the history of Judah, there are things going on back in Babylon. And if we look here at our timeline, you can see here where Daniel begins. So he was carried away in 606, 605, around there, B.C., by Nebuchadnezzar. He was a prince of Judah, taken from Judah to Babylon, beginning, what Jeremiah tells us, is a 70-year captivity. And so if you're looking here at the chart, you see where the yellow bar is right there? This is the beginning of the 70-year captivity, which is also the beginning of the story, the history of Daniel. Now watch that yellow bar as it goes across the screen, because where it's at right now shows the beginning of the 70-year captivity, and it goes all the way to here to the end of the 70-year captivity. This whole spectrum, which if you can notice here, you'll see is right overlapping the life of Daniel. But if you look back up at the top there, those little blue bars when we see Jehoiakim and Jeconiah and Zedekiah, why those guys, we've been learning about their history. And while we've been learning about their history in Judah, things have been happening with Daniel over in Babylon. You probably know some of the famous things that happened with Daniel. And again, in a few weeks, we're going to come and start at the beginning and go through. But you remember the one time when Nebuchadnezzar had a dream He had a vision of an image. You all know about that? Well, Nebuchadnezzar had a vision, and it was troubling him something awful. How many of you ever had a dream that bothered you? Boy, some of you are privileged. Some of you never had a dream that troubled you? Uh, Yes, I think we've all had dreams that have troubled us. And I imagine I sometimes have thought, wouldn't it be nice to have Daniel around to ask him what the dream meant? then again, the more I think about it, I think maybe I wouldn't want that. But nonetheless, God has spoken to people specifically in dreams. And here in this time with Nebuchadnezzar, it's very specific. Now, the wise men and the magicians of his court, Nebuchadnezzar's court, they couldn't come up with the answer to the the vision. They didn't have an interpretation for it. And they were all going to get beheaded. But then they remembered, well, Daniel... He's one who has the Spirit of God in him. And so they called Daniel to come, and Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar about his vision. And it's really intriguing. He saw an image, and it was a weird one, though, because it had a head of gold, and then it had chest and arms of silver, and then it had a belly of bronze and then it had legs of iron 
And then it had feet of iron mixed with clay. It was a strange image. And it troubled Nebuchadnezzar. Very much troubled Nebuchadnezzar. Bothered him. What did it mean? Well, in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel describes this vision in detail to Nebuchadnezzar that Nebuchadnezzar had, and he sure enough was right. And then he gives him the interpretation of it. Look with me, Daniel chapter 2, in verse 36. This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven, hath he given into thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. In this image, there's the head. The head is made of gold. And Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar now, you are that head of gold. Now, that's a big deal. Now, let's look again a little bit. When did this happen? Well, you see here in this timeline, I've moved that that yellow bar just a little bit further. This vision, this dream, and the interpretation of it takes place while Jehoiakim is still king. About the same time that Jehoiakim, remember, was given that that scroll of Jeremiah, and he in Jerusalem was ripping it up and burning it in his fire, While that's going on in Judah, Daniel is in Babylon interpreting this dream for Nebuchadnezzar. And you see, it's before these other events have happened. It's before the second deportation when uh, Mordecai and Ezekiel and Coniah were carried away captive with 10,000 others. It's before Nebuchadnezzar comes to Jerusalem, besieges it for a few years, and then conquers Jerusalem, and his commander comes back and destroys Jerusalem. This image of gold, this vision, or I shouldn't say the image of gold, this vision of this image of different metals came early. It came really, actually, if you look there at the bar of Nebuchadnezzar, it came just shortly after he became king. And Daniel tells him, you, you are that image or that head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar was powerful. He was a great king. And in fact, we don't learn much about, we don't seem to think of the Babylonian Empire as that big of a deal because as time goes by and we learn about some other kingdoms, those other kingdoms seem to have become greater and greater. But actually, in the historical context, Nebuchadnezzar was the greatest of the kings. We think of and hear of of Alexander the Great, and we think of him as this great conqueror. But in comparative power and wealth and influence in the known world, he was really small 
and insignificant compared to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, when he became king, was the greatest of the great. And keep in mind, this is before Jerusalem has fallen. Before Jerusalem has fallen. Do you know what we're going to learn today? We're going to learn lots of things. One thing we're going to learn is that God knows the end from the beginning. God knows exactly what is going to happen even before it happens. We're going to learn something else. And that is not only does God know what is going to happen, but that God is working in the kingdom of men. And in all of our kingdoms, all of our nations, he is working and he is sovereign. That word sovereign means he is in control. No matter how great Nebuchadnezzar thinks he is, or how great Cyrus thinks he is, or how great Alexander the Great thinks he is, or how great the Caesars thought they were, and we could keep going all the way down through history, and no matter how great Putin or Biden think they are, God is greater and God is sovereign in all, which should cause us as people and as nations to be humble before him to be humble. God is in control. God is in control. And here we see this in the time of Nebuchadnezzar. He has this vision early in his reign, before Jerusalem has fallen, early in the life and ministry of Daniel, he has this vision of this image. And Daniel now tells him, you, Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold. Did you see the description there? He describes him in verse 37, thou, O king, art a king of kings. Now, you might recognize the phrase king of kings. When we talk about the king of kings, who do we normally think of? We think of Jesus Christ, who is God. You're right. We think of the king of kings as God, but look here, Daniel's calling Nebuchadnezzar. You're a king of kings. But look at the next phrase. For the God of heaven hath given, thee, hath given thee a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. All civil rulers, whether you are president, whether you are dictator, whether you are a mayor or a governor or just a township trustee, you all are put in that, ultimately, that position by the God of heaven. And you are accountable to him. And we, as people who think we choose them and elect them, and in the way we do, need to consider who we choose and elect to be our leaders in countries in which we have such freedom, and that we recognize ultimately that it is God who rules among men. And it is God who puts up kings and takes them down. That doesn't negate our responsibility of voting for righteousness and for those who will uphold righteousness. We're going to talk about that a little bit later this morning. But in that, we recognize God is sovereign. Just yesterday, our family were, was at a wedding. Some of you were there too. Matt and Anna got married yesterday. And we got to see Sarah Morris, our missionary to the Philippines. And she was sharing us a little bit of an update of what's going on in the Philippines. 
they just had elections. And it's actually very troubling because they have elected the grandson of a monster of a dictator that was thought to have been deposed generations ago. And now they have elected his grandson. And it has people who love freedom quite concerned. Quite concerned. And we think here. Here we had this man's grandfather acting like a Nebuchadnezzar, king of kings, as a dictator and a relatively cruel man in his ruling of the Philippines. And now the people would actually choose his grandson? Well, in it, Christians look at it. Those who love freedom are concerned. But yet also, they rest in the fact that we know God sets up kings and he takes them down. So Nebuchadnezzar, you see this. You, he is the king of kings. But yet look, don't miss this. For the God of heaven, heaven, hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven hath he given into thine hand. Oh my, everybody is under this king. Everybody. And he hath made thee ruler over all. Thou art this head of gold. The great and powerful Nebuchadnezzar. And I imagine about this time Nebuchadnezzar is thinking, yeah, that's me. And you think I'm exaggerating? No, because I'm going to tell you what happens in the next chapter. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar decides to make an image. And you know what he makes it out of from head to toe? Gold! Because as he's here now hearing that he is the head of gold, I know Nebuchadnezzar. He's proud of that fact. That's right. Everything is under me. And imagine how he must have felt when Daniel then said, and after thee, huh? You see, Nebuchadnezzar is just but a man, and he's going to die. In fact, all the great kings, whether monsters or good, are dead. Well, there's a mighty great exception, but they've risen in power and great and are dead. Kingdoms have risen, and many are gone. After thee shall arise another kingdom, inferior to thee. I think that made Nebuchadnezzar a little bit more like, yep. But look, inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things. And as iron that breaketh all these, shall it break in pieces and bruise. <clears throat> And whereas thou sawest the feet and the toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. And as for the toes of the feet that were part of iron and part of clay, so shall the kingdom be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as the iron is not mixed with the clay. And so Daniel describes to him an image. And this image is what was in his dream. And he says to him, they are different kingdoms. 
And you know, as we look through history, we find out it to be past. Point blank, the Babylonian Empire was described as the head of gold. I wonder, how many of you, or is there anyone who'd like to tell me what all of these different metals represent, the nations? Who might, who might know? I wonder, first of all, who would know, and then who is willing to answer them? Okay, I've got William and Elijah, Evelyn and Lincoln. Anyone else? Oh, I've got Isaac over there. Good, good. Nathan, too. Okay. Let just all of you that know, shout out. What is the arms of silver? What kingdom? That's right, the Median Persian Empire. Somebody tell me, what does the bronze represent? That was weak, and I even put it up on the screen. What does it represent? Yeah, Greece. And then the iron? Rome, that's right. And then this one's a little bit trickier, but I wonder if there's different terms given to this one, but what's the, the feet of? The divided or the revived Roman Empire, which is actually, here I've listed it as AD future, where it carries its significance, but it also um, carries... Um, really from the time of Rome to this day, there's a sense in which the kingdoms, the modern kingdoms of the world are an extension of the, the Roman Empire, of the breaking up of it, and it's really just different pieces of it throughout the world, really. But look here, in all of these kingdoms, there was something else, and this is really sad because so often we get focused on this image. But do any of you know what happens in Nebuchadnezzar's dream with this image? Who, who knows? Who knows? Oh, good, because we can't miss this part. James, what other thing comes? A big stone. That's right. I picked out a diamond stone. And you know what the diamond stone said it did? It came and it crushed this image broke it in pieces, and then that stone grew and grew until it filled and covered the entire earth. And can somebody tell me what the stone cut without hands symbolizes, what it means, what it refers to? Micaiah? God, he's right. More specifically, who can help him out? Hope? Jesus. And now We've seen that we talk about the Babylonian Empire, the Media Persia Empire, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, the revived Roman Empire. What's this one? It has a part of the eternal state, but before the eternal state. The millennium, yes. This would be a symbol of Jesus Christ and his kingdom that comes and totally abolishes all those human governments. And then he sets up his kingdom and he reigns beginning for a thousand years as recorded in Revelation. And then it says that he takes his kingdom and he delivers it up to his father who is the, the sovereign king over all and it becomes and it merges into what we call the eternal state which is eternity future. The new heavens and the new earth. And that's here described. For if we look here in this, look at Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44, it says, And in the days of these kings shall be the God of heaven set up a kingdom, 
which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. And so in this day of Nebuchadnezzar, God gave him a vision, a dream of an image that recorded for him the future events and climaxed with the greatest kingdom this earth will ever see which will merge into the eternal kingdom of God. All these kingdoms. And so, what's this have to do? We might say, well, we have, the, we have Babylon, and that's, that's ancient history. Well, then we had the Median Persians, and that seems to be ancient history. Well, it's not really, but that's another topic. And then we have the, the Greek Empire, and that's ancient history. You know, we actually learn about it in ancient civilizations. That's the name of the textbook. And then we have Romans. And yes, we see remnants of Roman empires even to this day and of their power. So what does that have to do with us? Well, let me ask you, what did it have to do for Nebuchadnezzar? I think that the lesson for Nebuchadnezzar is the exact same lesson that it is for us. It is a lesson that began here before the events happened, and now we look back after some of the events have happened, but yet not all of them, and we see it and the lesson is the same. Any of you have any ideas? What do you think the lesson is? What is the lesson of all of this? Elijah? He said, we are in a kingdom right now, but ultimately God's kingdom is in charge. That's good. Any other thoughts? Yes. God is, God's, his word is sure. Yes, that is true. In fact, that's the very last word of this little speech here in verse 45. This is sure. Yes, that's very good. Any other thoughts? Well, I touched on one a few moments ago, and it has to do with humility. Remember, what did I tell you Nebuchadnezzar does in the next chapter? Some of you know the history. He sets up an image, and what does he make it out of? Does he copy this? Does he tell all of his people, look at this image God showed me. And there's this head of gold and the arms and chest of silver. Imagine the story, how it would be different if Nebuchadnezzar had set up this image and shared it with all of the people and told all of the people that there's a stone coming that's just going to crush all of this. And there's a kingdom coming, the God of heaven. Imagine what that would have been like. But no, what does Nebuchadnezzar do? I'm telling you ahead of the story. We're going to get to this and go into it in detail. But he sets up an image like this one, but instead of it being gold, silver, bronze, iron, iron, and clay, I, well, part of the reason why he probably didn't set that up is because I don't think that would stand up very well. You know, iron and clay. You ever seen that happen? I don't know what that would do. That doesn't sound very secure, especially with a head of gold. You know how heavy gold is on top? That's called top heavy. He didn't set up an image made out of all these different metals. He made it all out of what? Gold. 
Who's the head of gold? Nebuchadnezzar. So what he does, as soon as he hears this, is he says, nah, the whole thing's gold. And worse, after he tells everybody the whole thing's gold, he commands everyone to bow down and worship his image of gold. How many of you think that Nebuchadnezzar missed the point? Let's not make the same mistake. You see, we see kingdoms, we see powers, we hear of these great men coming into power, of these different kingdoms, and we see kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. We see parties rise and parties fall. And sometimes we lose focus that in the end and over it all, God reigns supreme. And in the end, all these kingdoms of earth, which, by the way, there's legitimacy to governors, governorships, rulings among men. God set it up that way, actually, back in Genesis chapter 9. He set up human government. Human government is legitimate, but it's set up by who? The God of all the earth. And all human government is accountable to him. That's a lesson. All human government is accountable to him, which means we all ought to be humble, whether we are the kings or the lowly people in government, or may I say even the subjects. We Americans don't like that word. Whoever, wherever we are, we recognize that it is the God of heaven who is sovereign over all. And we all need to, must be humble before him. Humble. So should our kings. So should our presidents. We need to pray for them, that they would recognize that their authority is given to them by God, that they are accountable to God. Not in a theocratic way, wherein they are mediating kings or rulers between peoples and God. No, not in that sense in any way. But that they are accountable to him to be righteous, and to do that which is righteous. Now, I told you all ahead of the story, didn't I? Let's look back here in Daniel chapter 2, because Nebuchadnezzar has a problem I think a lot of us have. You see, I've just now painted a terrible picture of Nebuchadnezzar, haven't I? I just now told you all, he hears this vision, and then he goes and he sets up an image all of gold, and he tells people to worship it. Well, look how he responded to, to Daniel's interpretation of this. It's actually amazing what he did. Verse 46. Then the king, Nebuchadnezzar, fell upon his face and worshipped Daniel and commanded that they should offer an oblation and sweet odors unto him. And the king answered unto Daniel and said, Of a truth... It is that your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, seeing thou couldst reveal this secret. Well, so did Nebuchadnezzar get the point? Well, I already told you ahead of the story. He did, but he didn't. 
And you know what that kind of reminds me of? Again, the whole topic of humility. Because I'll be blunt with you, most of us, me included, all of us, we know who we are before God. We know that the God of heaven is ruler of all. He is sovereign. He is supreme. We know it, and we even admit it, many of us do. But then sometimes when we are faced with something, we don't obey him. Instead, we put ourselves above him as greater than him. You realize that when we disobey the God of heaven, we are acting like Nebuchadnezzar and setting ourselves up as a golden image and saying, all you, including me, worship me. We think, that's crazy. That's crazy. But that's what we're doing. That's one reason why I kind of identify a little. You might say, really, you identify with Nebuchadnezzar? Yeah. Because so often, I allow myself to be lifted up in pride, just like Nebuchadnezzar. And that's the base of so many of our sins. I dare say all of them. For when we disobey, what we're really doing is saying, God's not king. He's not sovereign. I am. And I'm going to do what I want to do. So the lesson, again, that I learned here from Nebuchadnezzar is not only to just confess that the God of heaven is the God of gods, that the God of heaven is the king of kings, but to confess it and to live it. Every day, to realize that our God is sovereign. To recognize that I am accountable to him. To recognize that even those who rule over me are accountable to him. And will I do that which is right? Daniel was lifted up in this day and given a position of authority. And as we see in Daniel, Daniel's one who is lifted high. But in spite, and we're going to learn more about Daniel, but in spite of Daniel being lifted so high in the kingdom, he continually, continually recognizes the reality and the fact that the God of heaven rules in the kingdoms of men. And he, though he becomes a high-ranking government official, continues to live and to govern and to serve the king he serves, human king, while obeying his God. All through Daniel's life, we see it. In fact, if we jump back to this, this list here, do you see there's different, there's different kings that come along here? In all of those different kings that come along in Daniel's life, Daniel rises to the top in each occasion. I mean, he's, he's, <laughs> it's often said that he gets to be the second in the land. If we look here, you know, gives him many gifts and he puts them over everything and over all the wise men. And Daniel's lifted high here even by Nebuchadnezzar. It happens again and again and again with all of these kings. Daniel is lifted high. And it says, you know, he's like the second or the third in the kingdom. But really, if we look at things, he turns out being like the guy. 
because he has a proper view of human government. And he has a proper view of submission to God, which causes him to be one who rises in the power of human government. And he's one who is loved, admired, and hated, and persecuted. All because he knows that the God of heaven rules in the kingdom of men. The whole book of Daniel actually deals about these kingdoms, and we can learn from it. Sometimes we go to elections and we get ourselves troubled. I know sometimes I do. And, and I'm not telling you not to be involved in the politics, the election process of our country, our nation. In fact, I'm telling you to be involved. But as you are involved, do not fret. Do not worry. And as you are involved, recognize that God, the, the God of heaven, rules in the kingdom of men. And even the actions, even the actions of President Biden and of all the other guys that you just groan when you hear things, even if you, you know, we're, we're going to talk a little bit more about kings and all the aspects. And you may groan about this or groan about that. Pray for them. And one of the main things to pray for them in all realms is to pray that they would recognize that the God of heaven rules in the kingdoms of men. That is a very key piece because let me tell you, if they recognize that fact and that reality, not in a, some theocratic way, but in the reality of accountability and responsibility, we will find righteous governance. That's the fact, fundamental fact, that they need to recognize. When that fundamental fact is recognized, then we will see righteous judgment righteous ruling coming forth. And so in it all, it is to recognize that the God of heaven rules in the kingdom of men. He sets kings up. He takes them down. And here we see this in a prophecy happening in these particular period of history and looking forward to the time when ultimately Jesus Christ will come and all kingdoms, all kingdoms will be abolished and he will set up a perfect, perfect kingdom that will last for a thousand years here on earth. Then there will be a new heavens and a new earth as he delivers the kingdom up to his father. And that kingdom will endure and last forever and ever. Let's pray. Great God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing to us these things from history. Help us to learn the lessons from it today. Help us to apply it. Help us to be a humble people. Help our government leaders to acknowledge you and to be humble. Lord, I pray for leaders and governors and kings and presidents all across this earth that they would submit to you as the God of heaven, as the King of kings. And Lord Jesus, we pray, even so come quickly. We long to see you come, come to this earth on that white horse to set up your kingdom, the symbol of the stone cut without hands, your perfect kingdom 
And that's why we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We praise you and seek you now. We thank you this day as we celebrate the freedoms we have as Americans. And as we have these freedoms, may we not take them for granted, but in gratitude, in gratitude, give thanks, uphold our leaders, and seek to do what is right, both in the little ways and the election box and other specific ways that you may call us. Lead us as your people. May we be salt and light in this world, we pray in your name. Amen.